You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from your semi-occluded vocal tract, have you practiced today? Hello, ladies. It's very nice Hi. to see you all today. How are you doing? Linda, this is Sarah. Sarah, Linda. Hello. Hello, Sarah. It's great to meet you. I it's really nice enjoy, to meet you, too. I really enjoy listening to you guys. It's <laughs> such a nice um, atmosphere. It's, uh, is it atmosphere, Sarah? Is that what we do? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we're just kind of hurtling through We're something. faking it till we make it. There you go. It's a lot of faking it, but hurtling through cyberspace. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's what yes. we do. That's right. Yes. All My right. inclination was to say time, but that's Doctor Who. Vocal and, uh, fam, we have Linda Baliro here with us. Linda and I met at the Singing Voice Science Workshop last summer, uh, where we both were in at Montclair State and had a great time. And uh, I guess by that point, the book was already almost you know it was done and well into publishing by that point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I actually did have some final editing over the summer. So I actually did not finish with the final editing until the first week of August. And that's when it went to the typesetter. Awesome. Well, before we get to the book, Linda, welcome to Vocal Fry. Um, yes. And Linda is on the faculty at Berkeley College of Music. Or is it, uh, why, do we have to say the full title now? Ber- is it, it, you guys are just still Berkeley, but I guess they're Boco at Berkeley. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. We're just the normal okay. way. They have the long title. <laughs> um, so welcome, Linda. And uh, so, Linda, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, obviously, you've had a you had a, a big singing career and all this kind of stuff. Tell us how you sort of before you got to Berkeley and before you wrote the book. How how did you get here as a singer? Okay, I I would hesitate to use the word big on my singing career, but okay. let's just say I was busy. There you um, go. So I went to uh, New England Conservatory in Boston. And that's where I studied uh, vocal performance, and I got my my bachelor's degree there. And then I decided uh, I would go off somewhere to study in a sort of a more insulated environment because my technique was not really together. And my coaches and advisors were saying, if you go directly into graduate school, you might not get big roles, and so it's not going to really help you so much. It's better if you get your technique together come back and go to graduate school where you have a chance to get some roles in the operas and that will propel you forward. I tell people this all the time. Yeah. So, well, this is what happened to me. I thought, okay, great. And I'll find some place to go to sort of nurture my voice and work on the things I needed to work out and get more consistent with. And I decided to go to Hungary. (laughs) Hungary. Who goes to Hungary? I like to do things in the simple way. Um, (laughs) So I I, uh, I I wanted to go to the Kodai school in uh, Hungary. Ah, uh, yeah, of course. Okay. Oh, now yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It was it was inexpensive, basically. It was cheap. And um, yeah. this would give me, I always wanted to go to Europe, and I'd had another teacher earlier in my life who had said, every serious singer has to spend a little bit of time in the countries with the native languages. If you really want to sing German, you really should go there Absolutely. for a little bit. If you want to sing Italian, you really need to be in-country. And I had remembered that advice and had it always in the back of my mind that I should spend a little time in Europe if I was going to be singing European music. Makes sense. So I, I headed off to the Kodai Institute thinking that this would help me work on uh, music in a very calm way and develop <laughs> all the things that I needed to develop. And uh, I fell in love with the, the continent and did not want to leave. So uh, I searched out possibilities of singing or studying in Europe and found an American voice teacher in Vienna and uh, she agreed to take me on and I moved I spent about a year and a half in Hungary had a fabulous fabulous experience there did a little bit of singing um, had some work with some teachers at the state opera house there and they all advised me to leave Hungary because they said that the pay is so terrible and that the competition, the jealousy is really extreme in the opera houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they said, as an American, you're going to be really bullied here. Oh, so wow. get out. Yeah, that's what they told me. And they were singers at the opera house. So, huh. um, 
Yeah, because there's a lot of foreigners coming in. There's a lot of Eastern Europeans who get the leading roles in Hungary. Right, yeah. Um, I figured that was probably the case. Yeah, not a lot of Americans at that time. So I would be like an outlier. And um, so they said, go get, get go to the West. So I went to Vienna and I studied there and I slowly started auditioning and slowly started doing my thing. I did a lot of recitals. I did a lot of concert programs, a lot of church music and a little bit of opera in the smaller, uh, you know, regional houses. So I, I didn't work in, you know, big opera houses. Um, one of the things that stopped me from auditioning at a higher level was that I didn't feel consistent in my voice. Hmm. Uh, I, I was singing, I was working, I was okay, but I, I just didn't always know exactly how it was going to be that day. I was pretty consistent on the top of my voice, but I wasn't so consistent on the lower, in the middle. Oh, the lower middle. Right, which is, you know, typical for a a young soprano, but still, if you have the technique, it should be working consistently. I remember that, for example, I did the role, uh, I worked on the role Liu, and um, I really was told by a lot of people that that this was my role and that this would be great and I could audition this role, but I couldn't dim- diminuendo on the on the uh, high B end of the aria. Which is the only thing you need to do to sing the role. <laughs> everybody else could, I felt like. It wasn't true that everybody else could, but I felt like everybody else could. And so I was just afraid to go audition for the next level of conductors. Uh, there you audition for conductors directly at that time anyways. Um, and so I was afraid to go to high level conductors because they're going to be listening for that diminuendo. And when, you know, I just couldn't do it well. I mean, it wasn't, I could just blare it out and that was, it was nice. People liked it, but that was it. So, um, so it always kept me searching and searching uh, for the next level of technique technique so that I could get mastery over these, these subtle things that actually make it possible for you to sustain a career. That's yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, at, it liter- it is the little subtle things that also give you stamina usually, which lets you sustain a career. Exactly, exactly. If you're going to sing several nights a week, it's it's those those small differences that make you stay healthy and strong. Well, I mean, it's like I said when I was young, I could sing a high C all day, but I couldn't sing a passaggio at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And for me, it's like what I think of is now what I think of as the female first passaggio was what was missing. For me, that first passaggio was lower around the GA, B flat, and that's where I was not weakest. I was fine on, this, on the what I call the second passaggio, EFG. I could sing that all day long, yeah. but the lower one was really inconsistent. And, and that will that's where you die. I mean, that's where yeah. you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a question. I just I, I I just thought of this. Um, I hadn't I didn't realize you had spent time in Vienna, and the timeline may not overlap. But just curious, my two summers that I spent in Salzburg, I had the opportunity to coach with a gentleman who was coaching at the Staatsoper, and his name was uh, David Aronson. Did you ever meet him? Oh, that name is really familiar. He he was I th- I mean I think the Staatsoper was his primary gig. In fact, I think at some point he had even risen to the rank of like associate music director of the Vienna Staatsoper. Um, uh, but I, I, anyway, I had just it just crossed my mind when you said Vienna. Uh, I thought your timelines there might have overlapped a little bit. Yeah, I uh, that name sounds very familiar. I'll have to think about it a little bit and see where I where I ran into him. I'm not sure I ever worked with him directly, but I, I do remember the name. Yeah, sure. Anyway, all right. So then, I mean, so you're having a singing career then in Europe. I mean, for the most part, you know, and and you're over there. Were you flying back to the states at all during that? No, I was living there. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I had residency and uh, I was living and working and being an expat. So. Now, uh, here's a question, and, and I think this will reveal the next part of your journey. How did you sort of opera singer, because at Berkeley you teach mostly contemporary singers, is that correct? Yes. So how did you transition from that sort of background to your life at Berkeley? Yeah, that is an interesting story. Um, I was uh, told by somebody that I needed to meet Seth Riggs. Aha! Ah, of course. Okay. And I is. was told by an Austrian ENT to do that at a, at a workshop in Graz, Austria. It was a, my first vocal science workshop. I had actually, it was in, actually, that's not true. It wasn't my first. My first vocal science uh, encounter was with uh, Richard Miller at okay. Oberlin. Uh-huh. Yeah. My second one was at this uh, voice science workshop in, in Graz, Austria. And 
Um, and that doctor told me I needed to meet Seth Riggs. And I, I had just a vague, vaguely heard the name before or seen it online or something. And I said to him, uh, I said, what? Are you kidding? I mean, isn't he like a, a, a teacher for 13-year-old pop singers or something? <laughs> <laughs> I have to with that. And he said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. It's about registration. And uh. Uh, yeah, and so I started looking into it. And um, I remember going to the library in, in Vienna and looking up books that were like encyclopedias of contemporary music. And I had to study the styles. So I literally didn't know what funk was. I didn't know what R and B was. I didn't know what any of these things were. I had never yeah. to them. And uh and so I literally had um, encyclopedias out and got the names of all the artists, the definitions of the different styles, and I, I studied that for a couple of months. Brilliant. So did you ever actually work with Seth? Absolutely. Ten years one on one. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell us about a little, a little so vocal fam if you're not familiar with Seth Riggs uh, founded sort of a methodology I guess we could say of singing I think it's trademarked called uh, speech level singing often abbreviated SLS now a lot of his former um, uh, sort of uh, uh, students or whatever have formed an organization called International Voice Teachers of Mix um, but, but tell, tell us a little bit about your time with Seth because that's I mean that's an important name in the voice industry Yes. Um, well, what happened was, I, I after I got this advice, I was very skeptical. Uh, but one of his protégés was in town in Vienna, so I went to see him, and he was a wonderful teacher, a wonderful person, very kind. But it got me even more skeptical because he didn't really know classical music. So then I tried uh, another one of his protégés was in town some months later, and I met him. And he had a little bit more connection with what I did and understood a little bit more what I did. So I felt like, okay, maybe this is worth checking out. And then I had a recital. And I said, well, this is a perfect time for me to test out this stuff. And um, that was my first time working with online lessons. I had terrible connection. I didn't have a microphone. Everything was a mess. But I took some lessons with this other protege of Seth Riggs in between my concerts. So, so I had one concert in the spring and then I took some lessons over the summer and I had another concert at the end of the summer. So I wanted to try and compare yeah. what happened to my voice. And this was classical music. It was an art song recitals. And, uh, and I could hear the registration difference. I could hear that my voice was even going back and forth and that I had the, I had the middle working and I was able to connect it all. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't, um, you know, I didn't work on the top at sure. that point, the art song recital. Yeah. Uh, but I said, this is this is this is the piece that, for the puzzle that I've been missing. Yep. So I have parts of my voice working. I'm able to sing. I'm able to work, but I can't go to that next level because uh, of that inconsistency. And this is the puzzle piece I was missing. So that's when I decided to come back to the states, meet Seth Riggs, and and work on work with him on my voice and learn how to teach because I didn't know how to teach at that time. That's incredible. Awesome. I mean, so what, um, you know, one of the things uh, about that that I find fascinating uh, and, and our listeners will not be surprised, but like one of the things I say all the time about teaching female classical singers is that a lot of the time I will teach my classical sopranos particularly to belt um, and, and to sing musical theater styles just so that we can get the lower middle worked out. You are absolutely right, and he he does it with uh, jazz standards because sure. that, okay. you know someone to watch over me is a an example of a song where the female range in the typical key has to connect the middle to the sort of D E F area, absolutely, forth mm-hmm. in a, in like a talking voice. Mm-hmm. You can sing someone to watch over me. You can sing me me. It, it, yeah, absolutely. Vocal fam, we are in yes, ab absolutely. So then, how'd you get to Berkeley? Well, Berkeley was an even bigger coincidence. Um, so uh, I started studying with Seth. I lived in Boston, but I went out to California uh, twice a year for like 10-day boot camps with him. I went to some other workshops with others others of his protégés, and um, I also uh, took lessons with him over Skype here from Boston. And 
meantime, trying to figure out how to, you know, to further a teaching career because this was new for me. I had started teaching in Vienna, but okay. um, I, didn't have, I didn't have any training. I taught in the musical theater department of a small conservatory there. And I had success with, with the singers because I understood, uh, you know, the one voice kind of registration thing, even though I didn't have solid on the bottom. I knew the basics and I had a great time teaching musical theater there. Um, but I hadn't have any teacher training. So that's when I had started to go to the teacher training workshops and learn how to be a teacher. Sure. And so that's what I was concentrating with on Seth while I was in Boston on Skype and going out to LA twice a year. So, uh, I got, um, I had done some outreach in the, in the Boston community, uh, telling people I was here and what I was doing, et cetera. And one of those, um, outreach, um, emails and conversations was with the assistant of the, uh, voice assistant chair of the voice department at Berkeley. And so uh, she called me a year or two after we met and asked me to come there to teach uh, a workshop or a clinic, as they call them there. And so I went to Berkeley and taught uh, a two-hour clinic, and I had a great time. And I thought, this is fabulous. This will be so fun. I can go to Berkeley a couple times a year and do clinics. And um, she wanted to have me come in and do a residency where I would be in-house for a week or two and visit classes and coach different programs without the thing and without the, uh, throughout the day. So I thought, this is great. What a blast. This will be so much fun. And then a month later, uh, the chair of the voice department called me back and said, Linda, we can't stop talking about you. And at the faculty meeting, you were the main top topic of conversation and we'd love to have you come teach here. So that's how it began. And I, I said, Thank you, but I don't think it's the right place for me, so probably not interested. <laughs> and, here I am. and here you are. Six years later, I'm still there. That's that's awesome. Um, and so, I mean, you know, obviously, then you've been, you know, you've been teaching at Berkeley, and what what sort of inspired you though because i mean i know you guys at berkeley don't have a traditional like tenure system a lot of times yeah. a voice teacher we might have on who's written a book might have done it like to earn tenure or go up for full professor or something like that talk to me about like what inspired since it one of the things i like about your the fact that you've written this book is the fact that, and just say the name for me so i don't say it wrong being a singer being a singer being a singer Craft and science. There you go. So um, since you, I, I, oftentimes I think books get written because people have to write them because they're going up for full professor or tenure. It's one of the things I love about Ken Bozeman's books is that he's essentially written one right before retirement and then the other right, right before retirement. Um, it, it, you know, he was already a full professor. Um, they, but but tell, me, tell me, like, why did you want to write this book? What was it that you felt was missing that you felt you could contribute or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, here it is, by the way. Oh, we're not we're not recording the video, by the way, just so you know. I know, I know that, but this okay. is for your personal benefit. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> love it. Um, so uh, it's an interesting story. The story of this book is might be more interesting than the book, or at least as interesting. I don't know. Um, I had a private student in Boston who was um, in his senior year at Harvard University, majoring in English literature, and. He was a young man who had never worked out that passaggio for the men, the first passaggio. And he was like a singer songwriter and really felt he had a beautiful voice. I always think of people in classical terms, even when they're contemporary, he would have been a wonderful Mozart singer. Sure. Um, so when we worked out his first bridge, he was uh, really amazed. And he said, Linda, you have to write a book. And I said, Oh no, I can't write. I can't write a book. And he said, oh, yes, you have to write a book. You have to tell people there's so many people struggling, you know, who are not anybody famous or maybe not at a conservatory or a school to get help, but people like me who are struggling. And I said, well, it, books doesn't really work, uh, don't really work. You can't learn to sing from a book. And Seth wrote a book and it, you know, not too many people bought it. And those who did ended up not singing very well. So I don't I don't think it works. He said, oh, no, I'll help you. We'll find a way. So we started um, meeting and he was like coaching me on how on uh, getting a concept for the book and all that kind of thing that book coaches do. Um, and then I got the job at Berkeley and I got really busy. Mm -hmm. So I had to put the idea on the shelf. 
And then he moved on with his life and moved away too. So I lost my, my um, support system there. Mm-hmm. And I just kept it in the back of my mind while I was teaching. I was sort of thinking about, about it and how it could be done, whether it could be done. And uh, I got, um, I got an online message that I could enter a sweepstake to go to a, a bed and breakfast in Vermont for writers. Fantastic. Huh. Yeah. So I thought, so this, it turned out to be a, a marketing tool for them. They're looking for talent. So I thought, oh, well, this will be great. I can take three days in Vermont and figure out if I really should write a book or not, or if I can, and all these things, these questions that you have. And so I went to Vermont and um, the host of the house uh, met with me and we talked and he said, so how many chapters do you have written? (laughs) 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 I said, chapters? Like, how about sentences or paragraphs? (laughs) So, uh, Sarah, that's like that's like when when Jennifer reached out to us. And and I think the first time and we were kind of like, yeah, we could we could do that thing. That'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Concept. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it's the same because that's how all ideas begin, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, I can do this. It's going to happen. So he, he proceeded to give me homework assignments, quote unquote. And um, every night I wrote something and, and we went into the living room with the other writers and uh, we read our writing out loud and the other people said that I could write so I was quite surprised, and <laughs> I said, okay, let's write a book, and that's how I began. Clearly, writers must, sorry, this is going to sound bad. Vocal fam, you know I love you, all of you, but clearly writers must be more giving than singers or voice teachers to have oh, a whole room of writers tell you immediately that yeah. you can write. Um, uh, anyway, sorry, move, moving on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a very supportive, it's a very supportive uh, thing. Writers you know, writers have empathy for each other because you're alone in a room when you're writing. It's you don't have an audience. You don't have the the reader in front of you to give you feedback. So, writers tend to have a lot of empathy for each other. Well, and can you imagine a bed and breakfast for singers? No, <laughs> that would that would not go down well. <laughs> no, it would. Well, just wait. It's coming. <laughs> oh gosh, no. I'm afraid. <laughs> We're a PG podcast. Sorry. (laughs) I think everybody can see where I was going with that about singers being locked away in a Vermont bed and breakfast. Anyway, moving on. Moving. where I went to first. Well, actually, writers have that same problem, too. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, there we go. Okay, that seems right. (laughs) Moving on. Back to to where you were. What have we done? Ah, this is this is there we go. Wow, there we are, vocal. Fam. There we are, vocal fam. Uh, moving moving back to moving back to your development. Yeah, books and yes, back to the book. So you wrote a book. So I wrote a book. Yes, and so then um, once I found out that you know people thought I could write, um, my next question was, well, how to write a book on singing that uh, was wasn't doing what everybody else was doing because yep. why should I write a book when there's lots of other highly successful people who can also talk a lot about singing that are very valuable. So what can I bring to the table? Yep. And two is how can I make it possible that the book doesn't hurt anybody? So like I said, I've had students come to me for lessons who have studied from books or from videos or from online classes. And a lot of them have, you know, really hurt themselves when they've been home studying and trying these things out fascinating the, i had I, that's an interesting perspective that i had not thought of yeah because i've had a lot of them come into my studio and i thought i'm going to write a book i don't want it to hurt anybody so even if you can't learn to sing from a book quote unquote i don't want it to cause any harm so what can i do to solve those two things what can i bring to the table and how can i prevent harm to anybody and so i started then studying um learning, how people learn, and the neuroscience of learning. And uh, I started to learn more about singing cognition and how the brain works. And um, I had, you know, been over the years learning about the mecha- the biomechanics and the acoustics, but mm-hmm. I had only a very superficial understanding of cognition. I had read about it a little bit, but I hadn't really dug into it. 
So uh, when I started reading those things that are non-singing related, but about the learning neuroscience and, and cognition, I started to see how it is that we're doing all of this and how it is that you can work on how someone's uh, thinking and how their brain is working even on an unconscious level and that that can help them sing better. Okay. Okay. So I thought that's doable in a book. Fascinating. That makes sense, yeah. I hadn't even thought about because I don't have your book yet. I hadn't even thought of that perspective. That that's that's and, and you know it's interesting. It sort of matches up with the fact that um, like motor learning theory and just learning theory in general has become such a hot topic amongst voice teachers. Yes. Um. So I mean, you know that I mean definitely reason to include it. And I started I started uh, the motor learning thing like two and a half years ago and. So I was I was on it really early compared to what's out there now, um, and th this book is highly, highly. Um, it it it's it's presenting the concepts of singing to readers through the lens of motor learning, motor skills. Oh, okay. So the so the whole book sort of has that overarching perspective. It's designed that way. Okay. Phen phenomenal. So what? So then how did you sort of break down your other, I mean, does it, is it mostly material from you? I know, I think you've talked about having some interviews with people in the book. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did you then break that down? Okay. So based on the, um, the learning neuroscience uh, that I studied, there are a couple of things that have to happen for you to have effective learning. And one of them is uh, an emotional response. Yeah. Okay. And, um, when when we're when we're learning, if we have an emotional response, we retain the information better. And I know that you have experienced this, and all the teachers, and singers who are listening here, have experienced this. When you're excited, when you're passionate, when you really um, something is like, oh, that feels so good. You suddenly you remember it. Always. No one has to tell you again or remind you of. Yeah. It just sticks. And that's true of all kind of learning, even in school. And it's become um, more and more popular in, in all learning in education from elementary school through high school, college, for teachers to bring this idea of emotional connection to the classroom so that people retain the information better. Fascinating. So the next part of it is, is that there's some level of stress. To help that helps us retain as well. Okay. If we're, if we're too relaxed and thinking, oh, this is nice, we're we're not really learning. It's just kind of washing over us, and that's again true of all kinds of learning. And so you always learn when there's this little bit of stress that makes you want to uh, push through. Yes. Both and learning actually takes place. So the the emotions and the stress, and the, then there's the um, feedback. So. All, all uh, motor skills, like singing and other things, require some kind of feedback. And so uh, some, some motor skills we can learn with our own feedback, and some we need others. For example, the riding the bicycle. You, you need somebody to hold the bicycle um, when you begin. You can't. Yeah. No, no one can learn to ride a bicycle without somebody holding it. I mean, there might be one person in the world, but it's very, 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 very rare. We have to have somebody hold the bicycle. And uh, the reason for that is that our, our, our brain cannot understand how to balance on those two thin wheels. And it has to collect the new sensory information in order to be able to do it. And so the only way to collect that new sensory information is to actually do it. And but there's a, that's an oxymoron, right? Because you can't do it unless you can collect that information and you can't you know, you can't collect that information if you can't do it. So it's like this, right? And this is a similar problem we have with singing. Right. And so as voice teachers, what we're always trying to do is sort of trick somebody into doing something because they can't collect the feeling of sympathetic vibrations. They can't collect the feeling of a relaxed larynx. They can't collect the sound of a pure vowel unless they've done it. You can't tell anybody about that. They have to experience it. Yep. And once they've experienced it, they can do it. So I, I, this, yep. I like oh, to say we brain hack all the time. Exactly. For real. Exactly. And that's what master teachers have been doing for centuries. Yep. 
And, you know, uh, even though the teaching and the quality of education and training is now very high compared to the past, some of the past were great because they were so connected to this sensory uh, information because that's all they had. They didn't have anything else. And those great master teachers of the past were, were, you know, experts at this because that was the only tool they had to teach. Yep. So I became, uh, how am I going to solve these things in the book? And I set out to design a book uh, that could solve these problems. And that's where I came up with the approach of stories to create the emotional connection, interviews to create the motivation and a little bit of stress to make somebody push through. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and uh, self-assessments, um that are written in a very sort of fun way to provide some kind of feedback. Uh, the readers of the book are also encouraged to find a buddy or a voice teacher or coach to, to do it with. Okay. So, you know, they're encouraged to do that with somebody else to even get more feedback. So the, the book is, is um, usable by people at a, all, uh, all levels. If you're a beginner or an intermediate, you should get a buddy, you should get a friend, family member, coach, voice teacher, somebody to help you through it. If you're advanced, you you know a lot of this stuff already. You're just missing maybe some little pieces. And by going through the material and trying it out at your advanced level, you can pick up those missing pieces that you, you uh, couldn't figure out before. So there's different ways of going through the book and using it for depending upon what your needs are. But the stories and interviews are fun for everybody. Um, so who, who all did you interview? Mm-hmm. So uh, I interviewed um, a couple of young singers. One of them is a, a, a young pop singer okay. who um, is just, you know, emerging slowly and nice life of career. She has about five or 6,000 fans and does regional um, touring in her local part of the country. The other one is a long-term student who's a rock singer, Mike Moore with the band Fire in the Field. And uh, he has gotten incredible reviews that his voice is compared to Prince, and he, he's a baritone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's uh, he's an incredible guitarist, and he's been studied with me for over ten years, um, and has a nice also regional career and a really loyal fan base. There's Mike Gordon, who is the bassist with the band Fish, and also has the Mike right. Gordon band. Uh, who has an enormously successful career, uh, older, and been doing it for many, many years. But yep. when I met him, he had almost no voice left. And he had been told no to no longer sing in public by producers and engineers and uh, people like that. So he'd been told to stop singing in public. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. Now, now he's reviewed as the best singer in the band, and he gets all kinds of reviews that are quite public. You can check online um, as having the, a great voice and a great singer. Yeah, easy, easy to search them. Yeah, and then um, I also interviewed some people that are more experts. So uh, a speech language pathologist from Mass General Hospital. Her name is Tara Stadelman Cohen. Okay. And Highly successful, well-known in her field, uh, specialist in singers, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, she's worked with a lot of my clients, um, and I've actually learned a great deal from her as well. And um, Dr. James Burns, who is also at Mass General and a renowned otolaryngologist for singers, um, has worked worked with Dr. Zytel on the Julie Andrews case and uh-huh. many other many other of the celebrities that um, he was, he started off with as a partner with Dr. Zytel and then, and then uh, broke off and started his own voice center after some years. So um, he read the book already and he gave me a really great endorsement. Oh, please Uh, read it. Can I, do you mind? No, I don't mind at all. He sent me a really nice email and he said, um, I didn't know if he was going to have time to read it. Um, and he did, and he read it really fast in about four days. Doctors and, tend to do that. Yeah, and and um, he wrote me back, and he said, Linda, I really enjoyed reading your book. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to give you this, this uh, quote. Please tell me if you need anything different. And he said, being a singer provides a refreshing insight into the importance of a singer's ability to find their own voice. Mm. 
This book provides a logical approach that guides singers in the direction of optimal vocal performance. When talking to patients with voice, voice disorders, I will utilize examples from the Chart Your Experience exercises. There you go. Oh, that's that's awesome. great. That's great. How wonderful. Yeah. I mean, Thanks. that's that's high praise. That's 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 awesome. I will say I am always remarked uh it's I find it remarkable how quickly physicians read things. I think when I when I sent our first protocol to the ENT uh, to the auto on our on our research team, I think he had read the four-page document in about 30 seconds. Um <laughs> really fast. Anyway. Yeah, I'm a pretty much a, a very fast reader as well. Um, I'm not. Just, yeah, it's just <laughs> I read a lot when I was a kid. I read, read stacks and stacks of books in a weekend. It was just crazy, but uh, kind of runs in my family too. So my father does it. And I think when you're in a profession like law or medicine, you have so much material that you have to get through. Mm -hmm. that you develop that ability because you have to meet the deadlines and get through you know, giant, giant books. Didn't yeah. You, and I did, think, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I was just gonna say my husband, he's an attorney and his first year of law school in a sense was almost just learning. How do I read 300 pages in a night? And he had to learn to process all of that information very quickly. So I bet it's kind of similar with doctors where maybe that first year really is just learning how to read so much so quickly. I think so. Uh, did, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was not the last interview, right? You had another interview in the book, or is that it? You're right. No, I have two more. Okay. Um, one is um, with Jennifer Maloney Prezioso, mm -hmm. who is a Broadway producer, Tony Award winning on four shows, I think. She was the producer. It, a lot of her shows were teams, of course. Most, most Broadway shows are teams of producers. Right. Um, she was uh, Spring Awakening, Legally Blonde, Oh, wow. uh, an American in Paris, and I always forget the last one. Oh, I think it was um, about the um, musicians. The um, oh, I've forgotten the name of it. Sorry. And she's currently working on Beaches, the musical, from based on the film. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Mhm. Mm yeah. So she's wonderful. We worked together some years ago and did a workshop together where I trained, I did vocal training and she did uh, coaching and audition coaching. And I learned so much from her and she has such a wonderful, charming persona that when you, when a singer sits down with her, they feel like they can sing just because she's so inviting and, and opening with them. It's really remarkable. And she understands about mix and about having a voice, being able to move easily. And she has a great regard for protecting singers so when she auditions them, she is listening to see, is can this person sing through a week of, sh sure. <laughs> yeah. a week of shows, and et cetera. And she talks yeah. about that in the book a lot. That's great. That's a great perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. And um, she gives a lot, a lot of the view on uh, what's important for auditioning. You know, she's giving from behind the scenes of what the think, what the casting directors are thinking when they're watching you. And um, finally, I have another interview that is with Dr. Ingo Tiza. Who oh, wow. we've never mentioned on the podcast, Sarah, have oh, we? Yeah, totally unheard of. <laughs> New name. Who, how do you spell that? And what did Dr. Tiza share with, for your book? Well, interestingly enough, I didn't really interview him much about vocal science because he's written so many books on the subject. Indeed. Makes sense. Little, little yeah. one called Principles of Voice Production. Little, 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 little book. A uh, little book called Vocology. Um, yeah. And his books are in my bibliography and they were my main source for the vocal science topics in the book. So um, I figured there's enough of him in, in my book. <laughs> sure. That... Um, uh, that I wanted to talk to him a little bit about how he got to be where he is. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation about his time growing up in World War II and the impact of that on him and his singing and his family. Wow. It, it was really, it's really, a, 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 I, I was, I was, um, 
quite breathless at the, some of the things that we talked about. That's awesome. What an yeah. incredible perspective. I mean, we, we, uh, we someday hope to have Dr. Teets on the podcast, but um, uh, that, that's an incredible inclusion in the book. Wow. Yeah, really, it is. Yeah. Well, such an interesting perspective from him, because like you said, yeah, we, we all hear him talk voice science, but that's totally fresh and new. Mm-hmm. So. That's great. Yes. Um, I'm really fortunate ahead. the interviews that they each person I spoke to, I did it, you know, via Skype, kind of like mm-hmm. what we're doing today. And um, I really sought for normal conversations. And um, a lot of the conversations came out matching with subjects I was talking about in the books already. Yeah, perfect. It, it just it just happened very, very naturally that way. Like I didn't ask questions about a particular topic. It wasn't that I planned uh, this, but that when we started talking about what was happening with their singing and why they were singing and how they were singing, it just led to the same topics of the book where I talk about the motor learning and the motor skills. And I talk about evolution quite a bit and cognition and how and why we sing and how and why we develop this complex larynx and how we learn. And these topics, just the people just started talking about them quite naturally, which was a lot of fun. That's great. That's great. So most important thing I'm going to even ask today uh, is where can people get the book? That is a good question. (laughs) The book is available everywhere books are sold. (laughs) Okay. So it's on Amazon. It's on Google Books. It's it's available. It it, it will. I should say today is not the day yet. Tuesday, November 5th. Okay. So so Tuesday. So we got four more days, Vocal Fam. Four more days. Yeah. Five more days. You can pre-order it on Amazon and on sh- the the Chicago Review Press, which is the publisher. Okay. Uh, it's available worldwide already. So there's internet, the distributors in each country have it in Europe and England, but it's only in English right now. There will be translations next year, but wow. this year is English. Um, and, um, it, but as of Tuesday, November 5th, it will be available everywhere books are sold. So this is a major book okay. release. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I I hope to, you know, write a book one day and have it released and bought by eight people. But I mean, yeah, you know, this is a major uh, this is a major uh, book release. This is great. Um yeah, That's awesome. So, does the book Here's a question. Does the book have its own website or can they go to your website or j- just to find out more about it or just best to just Google the book title? The, uh, I would at this point I would Google the book title. We the work the website is under construction right okay, now. Okay, perfect. So my my website does has a link to Amazon and tells you a tiny bit about the book. Okay. But the the exercises in the book will be streaming online. Oh, that's phenomenal. Cool. A little bit of a delay in getting the website up and to be easy for everybody to use, but it's going to be up by next week. Um, so the people will be able to buy the book and then go online and listen to the exercises on their devices. So, Oh, wow. Great. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Add computer, everything, you, wherever you want, you can stream the exercises. So uh, being vocal, that's wonderful. So being vocal fry, we have to ask, I know at least one interest that you have already that I want to ask you about that being scuba diving, but do you have any other interests that, that, that might, cause being vocal fry, we are a one third pop culture podcast, but do you have any other interests that you're into in life? Um, anything we've had everything brought up from ironing clothes to, uh, chopping wood to crossword which, puzzles to yes, uh, Unicycles. to, to raising tropical fish. Um, that too, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> anything you want to share with the vocal fam? I say that, um, my, I, I don't have dogs right now, but I had two large dogs for a long time. Ah. That's where I started learning about motor learning and applying it. (laughs) Phenomenal. Training my dogs was, which is, if anyone has any experience, they know that training your dogs means training yourself. Yes. Right. So I had to learn a whole set of behaviors and skills in order to to get my dog to do things that uh, would make him happier and make her happier in life. And that's when I first started saying, Hey, wait a minute this is something like singing, learning to sing. And that's actually when I started investigating. That's really cool. Phenomenal. Can I ask what breeds they were? Yes. uh, One was a Belgian Tervoren. Oh, my. 
She was a beautiful dog. Uh, it looks one of the first breeds after the first breed after a wolf. So oh. wolf started the the dogs, and the first re, first domesticated animal from a wolf was the Belgian Tavorin. Okay. Wow. Beautiful dog, and the other one was a golden doodle. She was a quite large one, and a lot of challenges there. Yeah, golden I've always heard. Huge. I've heard they're also a lot of work. A lot of work. I believe it. Yeah. I grew up with labs, and they they are they're happy dogs, but they're very energetic. I feel like it's the best way I can nicely put it. Yeah, Sarah and I both being dog owners and loving our dogs very much, yeah. but and neither keeping an eye on mine. But, but my dog is not necessarily mm-hmm. trained very well. That's just a full confed. No one is surprised. Aria is indeed. I used to think Aria was like decently trained, and then like this week she ate a pack of ramen noodles like i don't i don't know she's weird <laughs> my 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 golden doodle was a lot of trouble i had to train her because she had very big teeth and i have the scars to remember her with so how did you get into scuba diving well i always wanted to i always was wanted to scuba dive and was fascinated with it but i didn't know that it was something a regular person could do i thought it was something for you know, mostly men who were into extreme supports. And uh, finally, I had a new neighbor that I got to know, and he's a scuba diver, and he told me I could definitely do it. So uh, I was on vacation in Mexico with my mother, and she sleeps a lot in the mornings. So I decided to try a course that was a very early morning, and um, I was a complete tourist and newbie, and I was very green, and I kind of looked at my instructor and said, I have to pick that, pick up that tank. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really funny. But he was uh, a very serious commercial diver, and he was um, like a military sergeant in the water. And he turned me into a tour from a tourist into a, a scuba diver, which is pretty amazing. And then I came up to New England, and I I learned how to to scuba dive in New England waters, and. Oh. They say if you can scuba dive here, you can scuba dive anywhere. Uh, it's very, it's very tough. It's a lot of work. It's uh, carrying 40, 50 pounds of gear over boulders and rocks and climbing into crashing waves, and it's quite a challenge. Not for like this dude. Not for this dude. I'm say, I'll um <laughs> sit on the beach and read and just let y'all. I uh, I had the chance to snorkel once. And uh, practically had a panic attack just at the idea of floating so rapidly away from the boat in open water, and so uh, I tend to uh, I tend to swim in pools. Nice without pools gear nice. on, uh, preferably heavily chlorinated pools. And uh, oh no, uh, you don't have to worry about your hair. <laughs> that must be it, because I'm sitting here thinking I much prefer saltwater pools. I I can't stand chlorine. Now I want to know everything is dead. Okay. Well, you haven't lived until you've scuba dove with seals. I'll tell you that. Oh wow! I bet that is magical, though. I bet that's magical. Changes your life. It's really beautiful. They they play with you like Labradors. Oh. Oh well, that isn't that so. Extremely large teeth, so you don't want to. You know, you want to respect them awful lot. But they, you can't ever with marine life. They're wild animals. So you can't go to them and, and reach out for anything because it's a wild animal. But when they come to you, if you stay relaxed, they can come to you and you can accept their their playfulness. That's um, awesome. And it's totally fun because you can just float there underwater and they come over and they play with your fins and they nudge your hand because they want a belly rub. Oh. <laughs> what a what a beautiful metaphor, though, for life that you can't force nature to accept you, but you can let nature come to you and give its play to you, and then it will. Jo- you can join in with it. Yes, I think it's true of singing, isn't it? I was just yes. First, yeah. You're very nice. Back me away from the ledge, Sarah. It's fine. I was saying, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, and the flip side is, every once in a while, it comes up and gives you poison ivy. <laughs> Slaps you in the face, you know? <laughs> That's true with singing, too. It can be beautiful and amazing. And then every once in a while, you're like, ah, 
But those are the times when you learn the most. Aha! Uh-huh. Very true. You you do learn a lot from those moments. But I, I have to play devil's. Someone has to play devil's advocate. Oh my goodness, words. Yes. No, you're good. Um. Okay. We have a tradition. Also, Sarah, what'd you have for breakfast? Well, it's a protein muffin. It was a muffin. But I'll, we're still we're still on that. protein, so I mean, at least uh, it's protein. That's the thing. It's got protein in and it. Thank goodness, no it's eggs. Protein. We're still not back to eggs. I can't. I can't. I eat too many eggs. There were too many, and now every time I try to eat an egg, I just want to die. Yep, can't do it. It's can't too much. It. The same experience. I I uh, was eating a lot of eggs uh, to be healthy and have a lot of protein. This was a while ago. And uh, it made me so nauseous that if you showed me another egg, I was—I felt like I was going to be ill. That's that's how I get with a lot of breakfast foods. I'll get on a kick trying to be healthy, and I've got to eat breakfast. But then after a while, I get to the point where, like, the food, it just makes me want to be ill. Mm-hmm. It's never happened with muffins. Wow. Muffins have yet to betray me. Exactly. Carbs always work, except... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that, that experience with eggs is what turned me into a vegan. Fascinating. Oh. Okay. Huh. Okay. There you go. I think you're the first openly confessing vegan who's confessed it on Vocal Fry. That's I, true. I think. I might be I wrong. a lot of respect for that because I, I say on a regular basis that like if I didn't eat cheese, I'm pretty sure I would starve to death. I think cheese is cheese and carbs, I guess, are the main staple of my diet. So. That's right. Yeah. Basically That's five-year-old. Wrong. Five-year-old is not. Oh, uh, yeah. I eat like a five-year-old. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, Linda, you're you're delightful. Thank you so much for giving the Vocal Fam your time. And um, everybody, go get a copy of "Being a Singer." I just said it right again, right? "Being a Singer." Yeah. "Being a Singer." Linda Baliro, get it Tuesday, November fifth. Uh, this will go up today, so got a few days you got a few days but don't but go ahead and search it out now uh maybe get it pre-ordered on amazon so she gets those pre-orders in and linda thank you so much for your time it was it was delightful having you on thank you it was a pleasure to be here i really enjoy listening to the two of you i think you have a great um thing going here and (laughs) you're really doing a great service to the community by bringing all of this uh bringing all of us together and getting us to hear background stories of places and people that we wouldn't normally hear so thank you because one of our missions of vocal fry is to bring people together right sarah yes so yes thank you Uh, for that all right all right well that's it for today i will talk to both of you later online i'm sure but thank you guys so much okay it was a pleasure to see you again bye nice to meet you take care bye-bye